0: West Community Church, living life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. Would you now welcome Wendy as she comes to join me to give the message today? Uh, we're going to do it together.
1: Huh?
0: I think the color came back in her face since last week now, finally. <laughs> No, actually, actually, honestly, she's talked about that subject a whole lot more than I have. Because You're just she's avoiding done, the
2: S word now? She's
0: done, yes, I said S-word. that S word <laughs> enough for the next ten years, I yes, think. I think he has. And, uh, and, uh, she's actually talked about it more, I think, with the couple hundred premarital sessions that she's done over the course of her, uh, her counseling life. Never so, quite
2: so
1: graphic,
0: I don't think. It was pretty... We deal with things directly, don't we?
2: At least you do, yeah. Honestly.
0: <laughs> well, Wendy's opinion is that no Valentine's weekend and no marriage series is complete without a classic clip from Princess Bride, so enjoy this.
1: Malice) Is what brings us together today. Marriage, that wedding arrangement, that dream within a dream.
0: It's just awesome. It's just one of those classic, funny moments in movie history. Marriage is what brings us together today, and actually, we we're we we're closing our series on the last session of our series, uh, staying engaged which we've been looking at how God wants to teach us about healthy relationship with others, particularly in marriage, but others in general and him through the lens of what the Bible teaches us about marriage. And the reality is it does teach us, whether we're single or married or whether we're thinking about our marriage or other relationships, it teaches us so much about not only how to relate to anybody who's difficult in our life, but it also teaches us so much about uh, who God is, because God uses marriage as one of the primary metaphors to talk about how he feels towards us and how we relate to him. It's been a wonderful time to look at that, and so uh, I apologize even some if, if you're single and it's been a little difficult at times to, to hear us talking about marriage so much. I, I just want to say thank you for allowing us to do that and and uh, It's so much fits in your life, and I hope that you've been able to take the time to make that jump to application for yourself as well in that. In fact, someday maybe we'll do a a message on singles because the reality is, whereas most religions and most cultures devalue singleness, the Bible actually speaks extremely highly of it and values it greatly and has a tremendous theology around singleness. So uh, I just want you to be encouraged with that. But throughout the series, we've talked about it in terms of foundational commitments. We need to make in order to stay engaged. Our first commitment that we talked about was choosing to look at your own sin, your own self-centeredness first rather than the wounds that our spouse exacerbates or may inflict on us as by their actions. And the second commitment was to put God at the center of our relationship so that we can see and respond by being a part of his agenda in the healing of our spouse instead of reacting to them out of our woundedness and so that we can also turn to God and receive the needs, get the needs met that we need to have met from him uh, so that we're not, as Wendy's favorite metaphor, two ticks without a dog sucking each other dry for the needs that we really have to get from God that we can't honestly expect to get from our spouse. The third commitment that we talked about in two messages was how to turn toward one another. And we talked about that in terms of repentance and forgiveness. We also dealt with it from the perspective of communication. Last week, I actually forgot to tell you the commitment. <laughs> Sorry. The commitment last week was to live life with a very high expectation of sex. There, I said it again. And the beauty of sexuality. Instead of, rather, instead of settling for our culture's low view of sex, which just leaves it as temporary passion and temporary physical pleasure for our own self-satisfaction. Today's message, the last one, we're asking for a commitment to persevere, to live with the end in mind, to live with the idea that someday on your tombstone is going to be written, here lies a faithful lover of family and friends, someone whose love and joy and beauty in life was more beautiful at the end of their life than the beginning. And you're going to have to have a really big tombstone to fit that on, (laughs) right? But the question is, how do we... Have love that lasts. How, when we're 90, can the love that we experience then be compared to the Grand Canyon as opposed to Walnut Creek coming out of the Hoover Dam a mile away? How can it be that much more beautiful? And we've already talked about a lot of stuff that can help us achieve that, but we're going to try today to talk about some biblical and practical things. Some of them will overlap just a little bit with some previous stuff we've said that can at least help us begin to realize that lasting love.
2: Hmm. Well, true or false, people just fall out of love. And I think by now you probably would all say false, right? Good job. And But for some, really, they believe that love is a feeling, and if it's there, you know... We, we, if it's there, they're going to stay married. But if it's not there, they're going to get divorced. But even from a secular psychology perspective, they would say people don't fall out of love. You don't just go to sleep one night and, then we, and a couple years later you wake up and you have the feelings of love gone. If love dwindles, it's because that marriage wasn't a priority. Love is a living thing. And if you nurture it, if you feed it, if you care for it, it's going to grow. But if you neglect it, starve it or ignore it, it becomes frail. Ross and I became really aware of how easily separateness can happen in a marriage. Um, in Ross's previous job, he traveled a lot. And so, um, we had three little kids and we both felt so much responsibility for. And so about seven years after with him traveling, he he said, okay, with all the frequent flyer miles I have saved up, how about we go to Europe for 10 days? And I was pretty shocked at my response because I was like, absolutely not. First of all, I am not having that large body of water between me and my children. I don't know who would take care of the kids. But underneath that, it was like I hadn't realized how far we had pulled apart um, because I thought, okay, we could have fun for a day or two, but it would be a little bit awkward day three to eight, you know, um, on and on because we had allowed the kids to become the whole focus and we hadn't taken time to nurture what was going on with us. So it was a good wake-up call because we know that if we don't put our marriages at a high priority, I mean, that is the biggest gift we can give our kids, right? Fifty percent of all divorces happen within the first seven years. But the other group that divorces on the rise is those that have been married for 30 years or more. And why is that? You know, it's, it's tending to the marriage, and how is that separateness um, happening? How are you drifting apart and knowing how to keep coming and pulling back? So the, the question I would want you to ask yourselves um, today is, with your marriage, are you more of a renter or are you an owner? Now, if you live in a home and you get the news that your home has some pretty bad foundation issues, that's going to cost you about $50,000 to fix. If you are, um, you know, what's your response? If you're a renter, I'm going to say, this This place has way too many issues. I'm out of here. But if you're owner, what are you going to do? You're going to say, I'm going to do whatever it takes to make this home safe. So are you a renter or are you an owner? Larry Crabb, he's a Christian counselor and author, and he describes there's three layers that are essential to every marriage that we're going to use as a framework today that describe what is mature and lasting love. And those three pieces are grace, commitment, and acceptance. The closest friends Ross and I had when we were, um, younger in our first decade of marriage, uh, they were like family to us. You know, we didn't live near family, so we had these, this, this couple that we did celebrations with when we, you know, finished grad school and we did, um, we did all holidays together, you know, they went to Bible college and they, we had fun, we had good, similar values, similar, they were just great people. We enjoyed them thoroughly. About 12 years into their marriage, They told us that they were going to get a divorce. And she had found another man on the internet, and he was just a much better fit for her. And And she loved her husband, but it had become, it's more of a friendship. So they decided that it was okay with God because he would be okay with them divorcing because it wasn't really an Adam and Eve kind of marriage. And I remember Ross and I, we were just sitting there stunned, like how could your marriage be in such a place that we would never have known and we wouldn't have been a part of that pain to be able to help you and talk to you and to support you? Um, And then we were like, what is an Adam and Eve marriage like? How do you get messed up theology like somehow it wasn't whatever? I don't know. But they believed that God would not want them to be unhappy in their marriage for the rest of their lives so that it was just okay to move on to someone new. What would you say if those were your friends? Or what do you say to a woman who tells you that she is in a sexless marriage with a spouse who doesn't believe in God? In this marriage, she continually feels rejected. And she asks, well, how do I continue to act loving toward him? And what am I supposed to do with my sexual desires? What do you say? You know, our first gut response might be to say, well, there are some things I know you should do, right? But why would they do them, right? Because why would they want to bother to put any more effort into this relationship? They've probably already spent a long time, you know, shoving down feelings and trying to act loving, trying to suck it up. But before they can act, they first need to know, is there any hope? And that question that underlines that disconnect in marriage is because they don't think there's any point to being obedient. Um, No point to working on this relationship because they just don't feel like there's hope. So maybe you have never been to those extremes of those two two examples we gave, but every marriage is going to have times where there are walls that build up, that get pretty thick, that it's hard to know if you can break them or how am I ever going to get over those high walls. And it's hard to do the biblical thing of staying committed to your spouse if we believe that nothing good can happen. It's because all of our relationships get touched and deformed through sin. So we need to know the core component of our faith, which is grace. And what is grace to you? Grace is that first layer of that foundation of mature love. It's the belief that God is working on our behalf, that he is there to give us assistance and help and to support to live this life. And with that understanding, our hope doesn't rest in whether a person ever changes or not because it's far deeper. That hope is not based on whether our spouse is going to change, our finances or or our health will change. It is in the grace of God. And to help me, one of my favorite verses is from Hebrews 6. And it talks about how the hope that can fuel that kind of grace, it's one of my favorite visuals. It says, Christ is the firm and secure anchor for our soul. I mean, I just love that picture of an anchor. Because when when anxiety or discouragement or fear or, I don't know, tries to come at, you know, I feel it trying to rise in me, I picture myself on a pretty big boat And the waves are starting to get pretty tight and rough and the wind is blowing. And I help pull out a big anchor. And it's so huge. And on it, it says, God is good. He's my anchor. And I help throw, I have to help throw that anchor out that I know that even though it feels like those, um, the boat is still rocking a little bit, I'm stable and sure because he is my hope. He's my anchor. And so when it comes to marriage, our hope, our anchor, is not that our spouse is ever going to change, although it's very nice when they do, um, but we have a keen awareness that God is present in our lives, that nothing that happens needs to bring us to a point of despair. We can be very disappointed, very angry, we can be hurt, um, but when we can land in that truth of grace that God is, of, He's the God of love, He's the God of eternity, he has all power to master any kind of experience or event that we go through. So when we know that He is good, we also know that we can come directly to God. In 1 Peter 2, it says that we can approach Him with confidence. It says that He understands our problems. He sympathizes with our struggles. And that He can work through our circumstances to, to bring blessing. Um, I mentioned in a previous message about one of the people who has meant the most to me in my life in in regard to Developing my faith with a man named Graham Cook. Now, if you remember, he was greatly, um, hurt, uh, with a lot of rejection in his childhood and even in his marriage. Yet the place where he lands consistently is God is the kindest person I've ever met. And so even in the midst of his, um, the pain, the rejection, he would always hear this invitation to, um, that he would ask, and he would hear God saying, um, well, who can I be for you now that I couldn't be for you before? And I just think that is such an unpowerful, powerful question for us to ask. I love it because God isn't surprised by his circumstances. He didn't cause it, but he is so good. And he is inviting us to every painful situation to experience him, him in a way now that we could never have experienced him before. Who does he want to be for you now that he couldn't be before? So in our relationships, we experience hurt and pain, but we don't despair. We get to be curious, like, okay, this is really horrible here. God, who do you want to be for me now? We get to pour our hearts out to him. We get to trust him and know that he's going to guide us. So that's our first layer, that grace. The second layer we get to embed in the foundation of, our, of mature love is commitment. Now, if we believe that God has the ability to work in our lives, and we believe that he is good, We're going to want to do things his way, right? We're going to want to be obedient. And in marriage, if we want to obey, we want to be committed. We want to honor our vows and our commitments. We want to serve one another. But what I have heard before is like, well, I just can't love my spouse because I just don't feel it. It feels empty to do these actions. No, I'll just be faking it. And I don't want, because I don't feel any warmth toward him or her at all. So what do you say back to somebody who has that, there's no feeling there? So you don't want to do, you don't feel warm or loving toward your spouse, so you're not going to do anything. Well then they might go on to say, well, you know, if you wouldn't believe what she did last week, you know, she, you know, if she's nice to me, I might be nice to her. What's underneath that belief? It's the desire that we're going to honor our vows whether, only based upon whether they do. Even secular psychology will push back on that. Because um, it, it, it leads to a stalemate if you're always waiting for the other person to change. And they know that if one person is stuck, if you're stuck and one person leads by initiating positive change, usually the other one will have some kind of positive change too. Not always, but there's a lot of times there's a good chain reaction. But with that said, even if we only obey and serve because we think it's the right thing to do, we miss out on a bigger picture. We love well... Because why? So let's say that this husband who felt really disconnected, like I don't feel it, I don't want to fake these actions, even if he asks and he starts acting kindly toward her, if he doesn't have some kind of internal or genuine feeling to support his behavior, he's not going to do it for the long haul. So when we try to look at what is our desire behind wanting to do that, we want to know why we do the right thing. Because it doesn't make sense, because in reality when we experience pain, what do we do? you want to avoid it right but what we're being asked to do is when we experience pain or rejection we're asked to like be loving back to go pull into it and why would we want to open ourselves to more uh, to be more vulnerable to experience potentially even more hurt it doesn't make sense but that that's where we pull into who do we really trust who is the one um that we can pull into when things are hard So when we're struggling with wanting, not wanting to be committed, we re-examine what again. What's your anchor? When the storms start to happen, what's on your anchor? What are your beliefs? Who is God? What is his heart toward you? If your spouse is a workaholic, if they're an alcoholic, if they're icy cold, if they're perfectionistic or demanding, um, if you just suck it up and try to focus on fulfilling your on fulfilling your vows without pulling into an awareness of the goodness of god you're not going to get that far for the long haul because it's important now what i, I hope i'm being clear on is i don't and we never want to avoid or neglect being obedient but obedience is like part of a seesaw here's obedience and here over here is an awareness of the goodness of god and when we're obedient. We can experience when we do loving things we get to experience the love of God and awareness of him in a a powerful way But then if we do only obedience and we don't get that awareness of God It becomes sort of robotic and mechanical and I don't know about you But I don't like to receive a lot of love from somebody who's just doing it because they are are sucking it up and just wanting to do it So you blend the two of them together That awareness of God's love gives you the motivation to want to love um And so we know that if we only have the awareness of God, but we never act, what does that say? James says, faith without action is dead. So we need to pull the both of them together. He is good. He wants the best for our relationship.
0: We understand that stuff. We hear that on a regular basis, right? And we, if we read the Bible, we see that invitation to love like that. But even in the midst of us believing that, we still have this pushback. I have it. I'm sure you have it. Where we say... What do you mean? I have to place a greater priority on my spouse's happiness than my own? I need to act lovingly even when my spouse is not acting lovingly? And, 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 and the pushback comes from this. We think that, that feels like I'm the one losing in this relationship. Mm-hmm. Now, let's separate this from reasons why marriages legitimately should break apart. Okay, let's not, let's not go there. We're not talking about that today. But the perspective betrays a belief that love must meet in the middle. It's like a football field. It's, if I'm going to be loving, then I meet my spouse at the 50-yard line. And they meet me there too. And if they don't meet me there too, then I've done my part and all I have to do is wait there until they come there. And if they never come there, then that's their fault. And I'm totally released of, li- of, re- of liability in this whole thing, right? But that's, that's not the, the, the Jesus kind of love. The Jesus kind of love is the kind of love that goes to wherever you or I are at. It doesn't matter how far we are at. It doesn't matter if we're deep in the other end zone. It doesn't matter if we're not even on the field. It's the kind of love that comes wherever we are at and meets us with an extravagant, gracious, self-giving love. And if you're a follower of Jesus, then you already know that kind of love and you know the power of that love to transform you, at least in some measure, See, we call Jesus Redeemer, right? He's our Redeemer. What does that mean? Well, a Redeemer is one who purchases us back from wherever we were. And he restores us to what we were intended to be. He brings the goodness. He brings the honor. He brings the wholeness to us even when we don't deserve it, when we have no honor or goodness in us or wholeness. He does it for us. And he does it for our relationships in our life. Even when we've made mistakes or others have caused pain, he's the one who comes in to redeem those things, to make goodness, healing, and wholeness be a result in our lives in some way, even in the most difficult of circumstances. And that's his invitation to us. In marriage, in the most difficult work relationships you have, he's saying, see me work miracles. See me come into your situation through your extravagant goodness and your graciousness and you get to be a part of the redemption I'm doing in that process. You get to see the good I'm bringing. What does redemption look like? What does it result in? Well, sometimes it results in change, but sometimes it doesn't. And frankly, the Bible's really honest about that, that sometimes people don't receive that goodness and the change that Jesus wants to bring in their life. I mean, look at Paul in 1 Corinthians. He's talking there to uh, couples who, to, couple, uh, to spouses who are married to an unbelieving spouse who doesn't really want to even have the same morality grid or, or anything like that that, that they want to have of goodness. And he says to them, you know, you should still act with the winsome, gracious goodness and kindness that Jesus acted towards you. But here's the reality. He doesn't give the conclusion as absolute change. He actually phrases it a question. He says, how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? He realizes it's not necessarily always going to be responded to. But that's not the reason to do it or not do it, right? Because we trust in his goodness, because we find him to be the one who truly meets our needs, we act regardless And in the process, we get to be a part of experiencing God's goodness, whether they respond or not. And those actions of redemption, frankly, when life is the most difficult, can be some of the simplest things. Because actually, when life is difficult in our marriages, when life is difficult with a really bad boss who's really annoying to work with or somebody who's really annoying, the first thing that goes is the simple, polite things, right? By simply remembering those habits of kindness, the saying please, saying thank you. And I think one of the most profound things is actually saying you're welcome. Having those simple, polite things. Having, having those the, the first thing that tends to go in a bad relationship is somebody makes a comment to me and we don't ever bother to leave our screen. We don't bother to get eye contact or turn, right? I mean, just those simple things of turning and giving eye contact and... And paying attention, greeting, when we greet people at home, when your spouse walks in, do you say hi, do you respond, do you turn to them, do you leave what you're doing, do you actually kiss them when they come home, or, or do you actually ask the question, how is your day? You know, those simple things are the first things to go. Oftentimes when things are difficult, and they're the first things that we can put back in as simple behaviors. We actually have a handout today for you to take home, uh, and, and consider one, one, it's got three different parts, but one of the parts is actually referred to as the five magic hours. They're little specific things we can do, and frankly, other than the kissing, you can do all of them with your work associates too. Don't, don't do the kissing with your work associates, right? But they're just simple things that we can do that, Start to rebuild that bridge of winsome mm-hmm. kindness towards one another when things are difficult.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, the third and the final layer that we want to embed on the foundation of mature love would be acceptance. There are just different levels of acceptance that we need in our marriage. For example, um, um, I'm you know somebody might say I'm convinced that God can help my marriage. I'm convinced and I want to. Co- follow through with my commitment to love them and do caring behaviors but there are just some things that they do that get on my nerves um, they they just annoy me like the dishes that they aren't done or maybe they don't listen to me or maybe they give me advice when I didn't ask for it or they leave clothes on the floor you know I want to care for my spouse but um, and I want to see a glimpse of what God has called them to be and encourage them on but they do some things that just drive me crazy so in this level of acceptance what do you do with that frustration where are you most challenged in your acceptance of your spouse? Does your spouse talk endlessly about him or herself, not realizing it is boring to everybody else around them? Um, does your spouse have some really annoying eating habits that you don't like? Uh, the truth is, every one of us has an irritating, annoying habits. And so what does mature love ask us to do? Romans fifteen seven says, Accept one another then just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. Well, thank you very much. Okay, accept accept one another like Christ loved us. Like, okay, how does God accept us? The Bible says Jesus accepts us right where we are right now. And if you're angry with God, He he loves you right where you're at now. If you're caught in sexual sin, God loves you and adores you right now. Jesus came and he intentionally spent time and went to the parties. He ate with sinners. He was with gluttons, drunkards, prostitutes, and thieves. He lived in the moment with them and he enjoyed them in the moment because he could see who they are now and he could see the potential of where he wanted to take them. And our acceptance with God doesn't change because um, of our performance, but we want to change. Because why? Because of our gratefulness and the love that we have for him. So we do that in our relationships. In mature love, how do we grow in our acceptance of others? I mean, marriage is such an amazingly constant reminder of the gospel. Now, there's definitely a difference between accepting and enjoying. There are the things that we may accept about our spouse's behaviors, but we may not enjoy them, right? Ross licking the bowl, it just drives me Good crazy. Because the last drop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It annoys me. I don't have to enjoy that, but I can accept it. Because there are things about me, there are things about you that God accepts, but he doesn't enjoy, Right? You know, we all enjoy seeing couples who have been together for a long haul and continue to enjoy each other. I mean, I just love, anybody who knows Walt and Barb Miller, they've been married for 50 plus years. I mean, they will laugh and giggle about some of their, their flaws with one another. And they, they still have those perpetual issues and then they, but they have gotten a softer part, a softer side of it that they can laugh and they land in a place of acceptance. Mature love intentionally pours that layer of acceptance on its foundation. It looks beyond your individual flaws, and in that, it brings freedom not only to yourself but to your spouse. I love hearing Tim and Kathy Keller. They're in their mid-60s. They're pastors of one of the most influential churches in the nation, Um, and they're candid about their less-than-perfect bodies, their quirks, um, but they talk a lot about how their love has grown and matured over the years, and he sums it up in in this. He says, when over the years, someone has seen you at your worst and knows you with all your strengths and flaws yet commits himself, him or herself, to you wholly, it is a consummate experience. To be loved but not known is comforting, but it's superficial. But to be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is a lot like being loved by God. It's what we need more than anything else. It liberates us from pretense, it humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and it fortifies us for any difficulty that life can throw at us. Is that not just a beautiful example of how marriage can be like a gospel? Acceptance is a powerful force. It communicates that something is, is settled. It's like um, it's like a, it's the difference between a button that someone can push and when they push that button you get irritated and angry or maybe enraged. Or it's when they push that same button and through mature love you don't get so enraged, right? And, 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 you started pushing that button on Valentine's Day yesterday. I remember I that. Yeah. The button, yes. And I, I was like, push a I went a little bit like, ah, you know, on Valentine's Day. But then, you know, if I can grow, if I grow in God, I can have that same button pushed and it pulls out what more of a patience, more of a compassion, more of an understanding, or maybe just humor and laughing, you know, and I, what is that called? I think it's the fruit of the Spirit, right? As God grows in us, we respond in a different way. You know, that's, and that's a, it doesn't bring the same reaction. And it, it pulls into a point. This is sort of a side note, but there's a when Proverbs 1722 it says, A merry heart is good medicine, but a broken and crushed spirit dries up the bones. I just think that is such a powerful statement. And I never saw it more clearly than when I worked in a adolescent psychiatric unit for substance abuse. And in that unit, we would work with the families, and they were very much a part of trying to help their teen and the family grow. And they were good at identifying problems, and they were very good at establishing goals. But we never saw that family heal unless they learned how to have fun together. And it's really hard to want to have fun with somebody when there's been a lot of pain and deceit and manipulation. Addiction is never an easy thing to work through. But when they were able to combine not only the understanding and insight, but they were able to start playing and having fun together, we saw them heal. And so when is the last time that you've laughed with your spouse? And what does fun look like for the two of you? It is not only important to your healing, but it's important to a mature love that you've got to keep that fun alive. And then a challenge, you know, that we talked about irritating behaviors, but the challenge to our spouse is up to, when that offense becomes more painful when we get kicked what do we do we feel it and if we don't feel something there's there's something wrong with us if someone is critical of you it does not feel good because we want companionship we want emotional support respect sexual fulfillment appreciation we want these things from our spouse um and it hurts when they when it doesn't happen because if our spouse doesn't have the power to hurt us then what are we in this for um you know, because if they withdrew, if we never felt any pain, what, what kind of relationship would that be like? So what is it, though, that you really want from your marriage? Is it a sense of well-being? That can get become a very tricky place. If we believe that our spouse poses a threat to our personal well-being, we are definitely going to get anxious and maybe in, enraged when they do anything that threatens a, that our soul, a well-being. But if you believe that they do not substantially damage you, that you could be unhappy. You could be very, very disappointed. But you don't get to the place of despairing. Because why? God is your anchor. You know, people can greatly disappoint, but they they cannot destroy the truth that you are loved by God. Your self-worth is not dependent upon their behavior toward you. You know, we spend an entire message on the power of forgiveness and how crucial that is. And you cannot talk about acceptance, about knowing how to walk through forgiveness. And it is a process. Um, But there's a part of learning about how to take those disappointments, that pain and loss, and pull into it. We have choices. Can we? Do we want to be safe? Do we want to, when we get hurt, pull within, not be vulnerable? Or do we want to pull into suffering and to connecting? As Christians, we desire to become more like Christ, right? We want to know him. The Apostle Paul went to the point when he said in Philippians 3.10 that he wanted to know Jesus and to share in the fellowship of his sufferings. Gosh, I remember hating that verse because there's no way. I mean, that makes no sense. Again, why would I want to participate in the sufferings? But when you choose to forgive somebody, that's what you're doing. You're choosing to connect with Jesus in a way like he did for us. You choose to forgive someone, to release somebody from the debt that they owe you. And you get to experience what God experienced when he did that for us. And so we don't have to look at hurt like it's a roadblock to our happiness. Actually, our hurt can be a deeper connection that we have with God. Because when we forgive, we get to know Jesus better. And another level... Of the kind of acceptance that we have to deal with, not just irritating behaviors or the strong offenses that people have, but it's when we don't know what happens for our future. The future may hold some impending pain or loss or difficulty. And acceptance then goes on, goes beyond loving our spouse despite their flaws and their sins and accepting challenges that may come their way. How do we keep ourselves open and vulnerable to love when our future is uncertain? We don't know what's going to be happening with a job. We don't know what's happening with health. There's some things we just don't know. One of the best examples of mature love, a love that embraces all three of those layers of grace, commitment, and acceptance, is the relationship as C.S. Lewis had with his wife, Joy. Now, that was a relationship that moved from friendship to marriage, and then the challenge that they had to live vulnerably with one another, because Joy struggled with cancer, and eventually she died. So in this clip, C.S. Lewis is, they're having a time away together and he's just wanting to stay in the moment. He wants to live in the denial of the potential loss. He doesn't realize the bigger invitation of mature love that is embracing both the present and the future. So let's just watch that.
1: No, I don't want to be somewhere else anymore. Not waiting for anything new to happen. Not looking around the next corner, no, the next hill. Here now. That's enough. That's your kind of happy, isn't it? Yes. Yes, it is. It's not going to last, Jack. We shouldn't think about that now. Let's not. All the time we have to it doesn't spoil it. It makes it real. Let me just say it before this rain stops and we go back. What is that to say that I'm going to die? And I want to be with you then too. The only way I could do that is if I'm able to talk to you about it now. I managed somehow. Don't worry about me. No, I think it can be better than that. I think it can be better than just managing. What I'm, what I'm trying to say is that. The pain then is, is part of the happiness now.
0: off right in the middle of the great music, right? Isn't that a beautiful clip? The pain then is part of the happiness now. See, for them, faith was a sure foundation, part of their marriage, part of their mature love. And we get a glimpse of mature love in them, but we get the best glimpse of mature love in Jesus. And until we really wrestle with who Jesus is in our marriage, who Jesus is to us, we have a really hard time understanding that. We can even see it in the picture of the, of the creation account in the first marriage. The first marriage, we see the God-created marriage, and, and he provided everything they absolutely needed, absolutely everything to perfectly meet their needs. The initial picture of marriage is, is this, this beautiful human relationship, this naked purity, this beauty and freedom without shame or without fear. And the problem comes in when Adam and Eve choose to believe Satan's lie that God's good provision was not sufficient to meet their needs. God wasn't sufficient. And the result is they chose to disobey God. They chose to seek fulfillment without Him. And we, we do the same thing with God. Sometimes we don't trust that His goodness is big enough to meet our needs in the moment, whatever we're going through. But the consequence of that that choice is alienation from God and alienation from relationship with each other. And we see that manifested in, in, in Adam and Eve's trying to hide from God. We see that manifested in our own lives when we try to keep God at a distance. We feel like we can't come to Him. We feel like we're not there, right? And we see it even manifested in relationships by Adam and Eve, hurling accusations at each other, anger and blame over the failure and the imperfection. Of the other person what's god's response to all that God's response to that rejection of him that that rejection saying you're not good enough to meet my needs His response is turning towards Adam and Eve. His response is pursuing them, going after them. And how does he do it? He goes after them. We see it even in the Genesis account in the, in the early creation. He goes to them and he, and he, and he meets them in all their shame and nakedness, calls them out and says, come be with me. You don't have to be ashamed. You don't have to. And then he, he answers that by killing a lamb and making coverings for them and taking care of just practical needs for them in such amazingly thoughtful ways. He does that for us. He reaches out, he makes, his, makes provision for us, and really that's a picture of the gospel. And see, it can feel trite for us to talk about the fact that we need to have our needs met in Christ in order for us to be able to love well. It can feel trite, but it's the reality. Unless we really get that piece down, we miss it. And see, God deals with that even perfectly in Jesus, calling him the Lamb of God purchasing us back, taking us from all the ugliness of who we are and saying, you're mine, I'm going to redeem you. And he gives us a covenant, a promise that he's going to make that happen for sure for you and for your spouse. Even as ugly as it may seem sometimes with your spouse, God has a plan if they will follow him to make sure their outcome is good. See, if we choose this covenant by placing our faith in him and the perfect work of Jesus... We're made right with God. And if you're here today and you can relate to the sense of feeling that distance between you and God, that alienation, and you've never made a decision to follow Jesus, you've never made a conscious decision saying, my whole life is going to be about this, I'm going to get my needs met here. Or if you're in a marriage that's difficult and you are at a place where you go, I don't know if I can do this, and you've never made that commitment to Jesus either, the reality is you're at a disadvantage. Until you make that decision wholeheartedly to allow him to be that person who meets your needs, who is the one you follow, who is the king, the leader of your life, he wants to save our marriages. He wants to bring redemption to the difficult circumstances of our life. He wants to remove the sense of distance we feel between ourselves and him, the alienation we feel between our, in our relationships. He wants, even in a still imperfect world, to show us how good he is in those areas. If you've never made that decision to be all in with Jesus, I want to invite you to do that today. If you can relate saying, yeah, I, 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 I'm not there with God, but I want to be, it's just, it's so simple. You just have to say, God, I'm sorry for not trusting your goodness, for not trusting your good creation of me and of my relationships and other people in my life. And I'm going to make you the leader of my life. And if you, if you're here today and you're going to make that decision for the first time, I want to make, I want to encourage you not to make that individually. Our, our culture tells us faith is an individual, private thing. That's not Christianity. That's not God. That's not reality. God invites us to make that a public thing. And actually, he commands us to, to, to express that decision through, through baptism. So if you're here today and you're making that decision saying, I've never really formally made that. I've been hanging around the edges and I've been thinking about it, but I've never made that decision. Make the decision today. And I want to invite you to consider being a part of the baptism class coming up on March 1st, because that is the public celebration and declaration that Jesus invites us to in our decision to follow him. I want to close our series by going back to where we started. We started out... Uh, talking about a parody of the marriage vows. The first Sunday, if you're here, you remember us getting up and saying, what if our vows were actually what our life was like? Our vows, when we got married, would probably say something like, I, 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 I take you, my starter husband, my starter wife, to have and to hold as long as you make me feel happy and as long as you don't fart in bed. I mean, it would be something That's like it. that. You know, we, we would say all sorts of stuff like that. But But the reality is, vows are not intended to be how we actually live. They're our ideals. They're the things we look to consistently to draw us to be better, to live the dream that we want to be about. But the problem also with vows being ideals is that when we don't achieve them or they seem so distant, they get layered over with dust, from the wreckage of some of our fights and disappointments in life. They can seem like they're so far off that we have a hard time hoping in them. We put them on the back burner. We may even give up to them because we give up on them because we feel like we can never live up to them. God wants to breathe new life into some of those vows, some of those promises. Whether you're single, whether you're married, doesn't matter. You've got things you've wanted to be in relationship with other people. You've got things you wanted to live up to in terms of the beauty and the power of the love that you wanted to give and experience, and you have not been able to do that. And God wants to touch you today, and He wants He wants to breathe life back into that. He wants to breathe life back into that. What are the vows you need to ask God to breathe new life back into your marriage or your relationships or your work commitments that you've made in, in relationships there? What's broken In your life that God wants to breathe into. In that brokenness, are you a renter or are you an owner? We're going to see one more short clip here from that movie about C.S. Lewis and joy because it it shows us how C.S. Lewis in this clip struggled with loss of joy and the grief and how he comes to resolve that in a powerful way that I think applies to us.
1: Twice in that life, I've been given the choice as a boy and as a man. The boy chose safety, the man chooses suffering. The pain now is part of the happiness then.
0: That's the deal. powerful statement. What do we choose? What do we choose? Do we choose safety to self-protect ourselves or do we choose to engage the pain we're experiencing right now? Lewis says in retrospect that the pain now is part of the joy then, but we could flip that as well. The pain now that we need to face, that we need to process, that we need to deal with in our relationships is part of the goodness and the joy God wants to bring in the future. The pain now is part of the joy then. And that's mature love. The willingness to face that pain so we can get to the goodness that God wants us to get to. Can we pray? Lord, I ask that you'd come to each one of us. Lord, you know the pain that each one of us is feeling and how all of our hearts are so easily dusted over with the disappointments of life. Lord, I pray that you'd breathe on those and that you would help us to hope again in your goodness. No matter the level of pain we're facing now, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to come to you, to not allow the alienation from you to happen and to receive your goodness and to trust your promise to bring that into our relationships, whatever that looks like in the future, whether those that we love respond or whether they don't whether they accept us or whether they reject us, Lord, would you bring your goodness to life now by your presence. We welcome your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's just continue to worship. If you're here today and those words are hard to feel, but you want to believe in them, then I want to ask you to just let somebody pray for you, uh, Tom and Deanna. would you stick around and pray? And Wendy and I'll be around. And Jeremy and whoever else, Joe. If you want to, if you, uh, if it's hard for you to believe, if those are feelings of, of difficulty are, just come down after service is over. Just sit down on one of the front pews, and somebody will come pray with you, or turn to a friend. Okay, if if you're here sick and you want help, prayer for healing, we'd love to pray for you as well. But uh, let's enjoy this week. Let's uh, go and remember to take some of these, invite people to make a difference. In fact, actually, if you're hungry and you want to stick around for some pizza and you want to consider helping out at the Warm 5K uh, as a volunteer, um, water station, uh, registration, uh, we got lots of other volunteer things. We're going to have a meeting uh, with pizza, plenty of it, so stick around and join us in the cafe as we close service today. Next week bring a friend. We're going to talk about the Jesus life and we're going to talk about a guy who represents everything any leader in New Albany, Westerville would represent. And he had some questions for Jesus and Jesus responded to him in a way that I think uh, was disconcerting, confusing to him and is sometimes confusing to us in how we approach our faith. And yet Jesus brings in his answer to him some tremendous hope and some tremendous direction to how we can live well. Join us. Bring a friend next week. God bless. Have a great week. Thank you for listening. Join us at Quest as we walk with one another in friendship while discovering the reality and goodness of God together. For more information and service times, visit us online at go gotoquest.org.